Section 15 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. The Magistrates of the Republic. It would be a great mistake to look upon the republican institutions, established after the fall of the Tarquin monarchy, as an entirely new creation. We have already had occasion to observe that such new creations are unknown in the history of the human race, and that all that appears to be new and constitutional reforms is in fact only a development of existing germs. This can be satisfactorily shown to have been the case at Rome, in this early period of its career, as it was at every subsequent stage. The division of the people into patricians and plebeians remained what it had been. The patrician assembly of Curies retained its religious character, the military and political assembly of centuries came into regular working order. The Senate continued to be the great council of the nation, but a change was made in the executive. In the place of a king for life, two annual chief magistrates were appointed under the name of praetors, which name was afterwards changed into that of consuls. To these annual magistrates the power of the kingly office was transferred undiminished, as were also the insignia of the kings. The change seemed slight, yet it was most important. For by the limitation of the office to a short period of time, the Romans secured the personal responsibility of their chief magistrates, which is the most essential part of republican government. During his term of office, a magistrate could not have been subject to a criminal prosecution and punishment without derogating from the majesty of the state as represented by him, and without danger to the safety of the republic itself. But his term of office being over, the council became a private citizen and was amenable to the laws. This prospect of an impending settlement of accounts was calculated to keep an annual magistrate in the path of duty, whilst a king, who retained power as long as he lived, was free from such salutary considerations. The second modification in the office of chief magistrate was its partition among two colleagues, equal in every respect in rank and power. This measure, which necessarily impaired to some extent the unity and vigor of the executive, was adopted as a precaution against the abuse of authority. Not satisfied with the limitation of the office to a short annual period, the Romans desired a guarantee for their liberty even during that period and they expected to find it in the control which one consul might exercise over the other. Each of them was entrusted consequently with the right of intercession, that is, he could place his veto on any official act of his colleague. Such a right might of course be abused to the great detriment of the public interest, but coupled with the responsibility which awaited every consul after the expiration of his term of office, it proved on the whole so successful that the Romans adhered to it cheerfully through all the vicissitudes of their history until the republican government passed into a monarchy. However, they were not blind to the weakness of the arrangement which they had adopted out of jealousy for their liberties. Whenever it was found that the division of authority endangered the national independence in great emergencies of foreign or domestic conflicts, they had recourse to a temporary restoration of undivided authority by appointing a single chief officer called dictator to supersede the two consuls and to unite in his own hands the whole executive power as it had been possessed by the kings. 
a dictator was appointed after a decree of the senate not by popular suffrage but by one of the consuls who though nominally free in his choice would naturally name the man pointed out by the general confidence as equal to the occasion the consent of the people to his nomination was expressed by a solemn act of the assembly of curies not the centuries which being summoned by the dictator himself conferred upon him by the so-called lex curiata the imperium that is the chief and unlimited military command the dictator then appointed an officer second in command called the master of the horse magister equitum to act under his orders the consuls and all other magistrates were suspended during the time the dictator carried on the government and they re-entered on their offices the moment he abdicated this he did as soon as the emergency which had called for his nomination was over the maximum term of his office being six months our authorities are not agreed as to the time when the dictatorship was first established nor as to the name of the first man who filled the office they agree in so far that it belongs to the first period of the republic it is in all likelihood of still higher antiquity in fact those officers who led the legions of rome in the earliest times in the age of the sacerdotal kings were probably dictators or the prototypes of dictators we have already pointed out the probability that the popular names master of the people magister populi and the first praetor praetor maximus which are reported to have been synonymous with the title of dictator were used to designate these chief officers in the pre-republican age they were certainly not used afterwards and as they were titles of high antiquity we are led to assume that they were applied to a constitutional office in the oldest period of rome if this conjecture prove correct we see that the republican practice was also in this respect far from being an entire novelty and that the forms of the republican institutions were partly a revival partly a development of a former state of things we may go further and say that in all probability the duality of the chief office that is the consular form of government was probably not introduced immediately upon the expulsion of the kings but that that event was followed in the first instance by the restoration of the dictatorship which in its turn was modified to give place to the consular government such a course of events is made highly probable by the traditions which clung to the name of valerius Poplicola. it is related that after the death of brutus his colleague in the first year of the republic he remained alone in office as sole consul and omitted to call an assembly of the people for the election of a second consul this proceeding it is said gave umbrage to the people especially as valerius began to build himself a house on the velia the very spot where the kings had resided it was feared that he was about to imitate the example of tarquin and aspire to make himself sole and perpetual master but valerius put to shame all fear and all suspicion he proposed and passed a law in the Centuriate assembly by which it was declared high treason in a citizen to assume public authority which was not legally and freely conferred upon him by the people in other words a law punishing by outlawry and confiscation any attempt to restore the monarchy a second law of valerius granted to every citizen the right of appeal from a penal sentence of the magistrates to the popular assembly these two laws contained the formal abolition of the monarchy and secured the acknowledgment of the sovereignty of the people 
To mark this by an outward sign, Valerius ordered the axes to be removed from the fast case of his lictors, and thus appeared before the people without the dreaded instruments of death, which had been a significant part of the royal and dictatorial insignia. From this time forward, the consuls did not show the axes within the precincts of the city. This symbol of power over life and death was reserved to the dictators, and in case of war, to the consuls in the field. The tradition of the policy of Valerius deserves credit, inasmuch as it was necessarily kept alive by the continued enforcement of the Valerian laws, the charter of the Republic. It points unmistakably to the fact that the annual election of two magistrates, which is the characteristic mark of the Republic, was preceded by a period in which not two but one man was at the head of the state, and that the time of office was not then strictly limited to one year. This dictatorship again was not a new invention, but the revival of the old or perhaps primeval office of an occasional master of the people, which had degenerated in the time of the Tarquins into government for life. The duties of government in the states of antiquity were very simple, especially in states so small and so little advanced in civilization as Rome was in the earlier stages of her career. The principal duty devolving upon the consuls was the command of the army in those everlasting petty wars in which Rome, like every small and rude community, was involved. To maintain the independence of the state is the primary object of all national institutions, and the military organization was therefore the foundation for all civil order. The army, as we shall see, was the model for the popular assembly. Internal peace, not less important than protection from abroad, was secured by the laws, and here again the duties of the Roman magistrates were very simple. For the settlement of private disputes and claims, private arbitrators agreed upon by the parties acted under the authority and sanction of the magistrates. Criminal jurisdiction alone was in the hands of the magistrates, but the consuls could, like the kings, appoint judges, quaestors, for the trial of offenders. An appeal lay from the decision of the magistrate to the popular assembly, which was thus constituted the highest court of law in criminal jurisdiction. The public jurisdiction was to a considerable extent limited by the private jurisdiction exercised by every paterfamilias over the members of his family and his slaves. As he had power of life and death, it may easily be imagined how important this family jurisdiction must have been. Religion being in Rome, as everywhere in antiquity, a political and national institution, and therefore necessarily under the control of the state, the priests and other ministers of religion were to a certain extent public servants, though they differed from the secular magistrates in being appointed not by the people, but by other priests, and not for a limited term, but for life. They were not confined to their priestly functions. They might hold civil offices, and it could and did happen that even the chief pontiff, the head of the national worship, was praetor or consul. The king of sacrifices, Rex Sacrorum, was the solitary exception. He was not only lowered in authority, being placed under the chief pontiff, though nominally first in rank, but he was specially debarred from all public functions, civil or military. His office was preserved only as a relic of past times, and this is among the most noteworthy examples of that superstitious conservatism which made the Romans scruple formally to abolish old institutions even when they were superseded in reality. This tendency is especially perceptible 
when the old institutions were sanctioned by religion, introduced by auspices with the special approbation of the gods, and connected with solemn periodical rites, as was the case with the office of the king of sacrifices. The office of pontiff was by far the most important of all those connected with religion. The pontiffs, three in number, afterwards seven, with a high pontiff, Pontifex Maximus, at their head, were not priests in the strict sense of the word, not being specially attached to the service of any particular god. They were rather a body of superintendents, guardians of the purity of the national religion and worship, interpreters of the divine law, and as the divine law, Fas, was the foundation of civil law, they were in possession of all those forms and technicalities which constituted a most essential feature in Roman jurisprudence, and the exclusive knowledge of which was doubly valuable at a time when the laws were not committed to writing, but jealously watched as a sacred and secret treasure. In the maze of numberless and subtle intricacies which the complicated system of religious observances could not fail to present, the people, whether in their private capacity or as public servants, were obliged constantly to have recourse to the pontiffs, who would advise them what solemn words had to be spoken, what times and seasons to be observed, what gestures and dress, what purifications and sacrifices were necessary to avert the danger of a deity ever ready to avenge the least, even involuntary, deviation from the prescribed rule. When a word wrongfully omitted or added, or an omen misinterpreted or neglected might possibly bring irretrievable ruin on a worshipper, and could at any rate be expiated only by a certain definite rite or sacrifice, the advice of the pontiffs must have been in constant request, and their influence must have been unbounded. Besides the strictly religious duties which they had to discharge, the pontiffs represented in some sense the science and literature of the nation, like the Christian clergy amid the universal ignorance of the Middle Ages. They were the public astronomers, having to fix the solemn days of worship and political transactions, to divide the year into months and weeks, to keep it in accordance with the course of the sun, a duty which they discharged with reckless irregularity, partly from ignorance, partly to serve political and party purposes. They were also, as we have seen, the national chroniclers, and as such were bound to cultivate what might be called a literature. But their annals were no great literary performance, and the literature of Rome remained in a rudimentary condition until Greek influence made itself felt. The public auspices were in the keeping of another body of religious functionaries, the augurs, who, like the pontiffs, were not really priests in the strict sense of the word, as they had not to conduct any public worship. Their only duty was to assist the magistrates in taking the auspices, that is, to act as their servants when they wished to consult the will of the gods. They could not act of their own accord, but had to wait till they were bidden. They were therefore far from being able to exercise an independent authority or to counteract and thwart the public will. The signs sent by the gods were sent not to them, but to the magistrates. All that the augurs had to do was to watch for them in the form prescribed by the sacred law, to interpret and to announce them to the magistrates, and the spirit of formalism pervading the religion of Rome was such that if an augur by mistake or purposely announced signs which he had not seen, the magistrate was justified in acting upon the announcement as if it had been correct, 
and the gods were supposed to be bound by the false announcement, though they might punish the augur for making it. The system of public auspices sprang up like every religious custom in a period of unbounded faith, at a time when no man would have ventured upon any enterprise unless he had honestly ascertained by undoubted signs the will of the approving deity. But this faith did not survive long the primeval period of sacerdotal kings. After the establishment of the Republic, the auspices began to be used as a political instrument to serve purely political ends. The science of the augurs was pressed into the service of the state, and they were made to announce favorable or unfavorable auspices as the public interest or even the interest of a party might require. The election of political adversaries might thus be frustrated on the pretext that the auspices were against it. A law might be rejected on the same plea. An expedition postponed or given up, a council called back from a campaign, in short, any measure annulled or thwarted by this means without making it appear that political considerations dictated the opposition. Of course, such procedures would in the end dull the edge of the weapon employed. People will not submit to be influenced by religious scruples when they discover that their scruples are not shared by priests or rulers who make good use of them for worldly purposes. This was shown at Rome in the contest between the patricians and the plebeians, the clenching argument of the former was always this, that the plebeians could not take the auspices, and therefore could not hold the high offices of state. When the plebeians had gradually acquired power and influence enough to extort equal political rights from their opponents, this argument was found to be based on false assumptions, for no difficulty was experienced by plebeian consuls when they had to approach the gods through the old patrician auspices. End of section 15.